If you are born to write, you just have to do it. Micheline Maynard is that kind of writer, having written books about the auto industry, articles about food and travel, and her new book, Satisfaction Guaranteed, about Zingerman's Deli in Ann Arbor, Michigan. It's on Tip of the Tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Micheline Maynard. She's a columnist at the Washington Post. She has much experience as a writer with the New York Times, as bureau chief of the Detroit Bureau, and her new book, Satisfaction Guaranteed is about Zingerman's in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Welcome, Mickey. Hi, Liz. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm really excited about this new book that you've written. I know that a lot of your experience is writing business books, and you've written some heavy-duty books about the auto industry and the kinds of industry issues that come up, and those are things that really affect lots and lots of things. I think it's wonderful that you've turned all of those talents to writing about the food business. <laughs> and and this is a particularly special food business besides that. So how did you make that decision? Hi, Liz. Thanks again for having me. The transition, I think, took place while I was still covering the automobile industry for the New York Times. In 2007, I got to go to the Paris Motor Show, and I had always wanted to take cooking classes in Paris. And months before the auto show, I got this email from Patricia Wells, who said, I have a cancellation. You have two days to decide. And I looked at the price, and I sort of gasped. And then I thought, well, that's right after the Paris Motor Show. So I can go to Paris. I can cover the Motor Show. And I could take cooking classes with Patricia Wells, which I did. And she's become one of my mentors and is just as lovely a person as you hope she will be. And of course, right after that, the auto industry went into crisis. And I spent the next few years covering its decline and the bankruptcies Mm -hmm. and their eventual emergence from bankruptcies. But I really had gotten bitten by the food bug. I was always somebody who picked the restaurants where the reporters went to eat. And (laughs) I kind of got that idea in my head from like about 2010 on that if I could, I wanted to transition into becoming a food writer. And obviously it's not as easy as just saying, I want to be a food writer. I mean, one of the things I've learned is that just as I had to have an education to understand the automobile industry, you really need an education to understand how the food world works. So the fun thing for me as I started thinking about writing a book about Zingerman's was to see that Zingerman's was actually set up kind of like one of the car companies. And that car company is Toyota. And there is actually a line that connects the two of them because 
The founders of Zingerman's are fascinated by the way Toyota does business, and they've actually hired people from Toyota to work for the Zingerman's community businesses. I think that that is just amazing. But, you know, I think that the food industry is just as big, if not really bigger than the, than the, than the car industry. It's just a little bit more fragmented. That's, that's um, a good way to put it, fragmented, because obviously, you know, there are car dealers everywhere, but right. car manufacturing has kind of shrunk down to the, the corridor from Detroit down to Texas and mm-hmm. a little bit over to Georgia and Alabama. But really, it's smack dab in the middle of the country where it used to be spread all over the place. And with restaurants, I mean, obviously, we have restaurants in every corner of the country. Right, right. And it's also international as the car business is too now. So I think right now they're very analogous, but there are also differences. So, okay, go on. I interrupted your story. Oh, no. So when I started looking at Zingerman's and I, I kind of spent, I would say about a year researching the company and right towards the end, everything started to click into place. And I asked Paul Saginaw, who is one of the co-founders, why am I seeing all these similarities between Zingerman's and Toyota? And he said, well, way back at the beginning, he and Ari Weinswag used to read business books and they would pass them back and forth and say, what do you think of this idea? What do you think of that idea? And he said, one of the books that we read was by W. Edwards Deming. And of course, the light bulb goes off in my head because Dr. Deming was the person that went to Japan after World War II, and he helped the car companies there get back on their feet. And then he devised the famous 14 points for running a manufacturing company. And Paul Saginaw was quoting the 14 points to me. And I thought, huzzah, (laughs) there's, there's the connection right there. So yes, they started with a single little brick deli on Detroit Street in Ann Arbor, and now they're a $70 million business with, I think, 14 separate units, which is called the community of businesses. So no, they're not a zillion dollar business like Toyota, but they've certainly scaled themselves up. Well, I have to tell you, I have always thought of them as the model for our nonprofit, which I know is totally a different kind of industry. But what I loved about them is that they have these in semi-independent sections and they're all together under this, this big umbrella. And they are thinking from day one about the time when they will no longer be. I think that that is just so important, which means that their company can live on even when they're no longer living. And I know that when... I reached a certain age and I said, okay, I can't just be the kind of person who started a food museum and other kinds of things that are related to that. When I die, it's all going to just be over. So you have to pass it on. And I had done a lot of reading about the difference between GM and Ford. (laughs) And I didn't want to be Henry Ford. I wanted to be the anonymous president of GM and have it be about the food museum and not about me. And I think that the Zingerman's philosophy is very much like that. 
Yeah, so in Ann Arbor, and I'm not sure how many of your listeners have been up there, but you know, it's a beautiful leafy college town and it's known for the University of Michigan. But what I'm finding is that people now know it as much for Zingerman's as they do as for U of M. But it's the kind of city where you can start a business and be very successful and just be in Ann Arbor. Mm -hmm. There are million dollar food businesses. There are small farmers that can come to our farmer's market and supply the local grocery stores and do pretty well. You know, so you don't have to grow, but they decided about 10 years in, because now they're 40 years old, that they really did need to think about the future because it's too easy in the food business to copy, you know, so you really can't trademark a recipe. You can try. I mean, you can become so famous for it. Like think about blackened redfish. It right. Falls, mm-hmm. Someplace like that. You know, sure. We know that it came from K Paul's, but somebody who's eating blackened redfish in Boise might have no idea. They just know it as blackened redfish. Mm-hmm. So what they were afraid of was that everybody would try to copy what they were doing with the deli and they wanted to have a bigger entity than just the one store and their mail order business. They wanted to have a whole umbrella under which these smaller companies could grow. And that's a, that's a really important thing. I think if you want to just be one restaurant, that's just fine. And you can make a living at that. But if you really want to have an impact, it does help to think about what can we do next? So do you think that their personal personalities have affected the way they think about the business? Or do you think that it was more calculated and they decided that this was simply an ethical and appropriate way to do business? So I think it's a little bit of both. So Paul, the two, oh, the two founders, just for anybody who isn't familiar, are Paul Saginaw and Ari Weinswag. Paul's from Detroit, Ari's from Chicago. They both grew up in Jewish families eating Jewish food. And when they got to Ann Arbor, um, Paul was a manager at a restaurant called Maud's, which is someplace we ate when we were kids. And Ari came in as a for a job and he got a job as a dishwasher. I mean, he was a Russian studies major. So, you know, like typical Ann Arbor, you come to U of M, you get a job in a restaurant and then you leave, but he didn't leave. And they were simpatico and they're very different people. Paul is more, Paul's pretty quirky. I mean, he's still kind of a rock and roll kind of guy, but he's the sort of the business brains. And Ari is, I call him the philosopher of Zingerman's. And if anyone signs up for his weekly newsletter, it's not just like bullet points about food. It's kind of these treatises on different philosophers and and writers. And you'll wonder where he's going with it. And then he kind of wraps it up with a bow. But I think you see the traits of both in Zingerman's. You see this It's never changed its typeface. You know, its font is this quirky font. It it illustrates everything. So when my book came out, my book is actually illustrated by a really cool artist in New York, but they re-illustrated the cover of my book so it would look like a Zingerman's drawn cover. Uh And then they, they did a caricature of me 
to to use in, instead of my photograph they <laughs> they zingermanized me and so there's a caricature of me you know with my glasses and my hair that they use in all of the promotional materials so they're they're sort of calculatedly quirky i guess is a way to put it i mean uh-huh. these are smart business people they know how to market themselves like nobody else and they have a huge fan base but they also do a lot of things that other companies might try and discard for example in the bakehouse which is their bakery they have a whole line of hungarian pastries I would estimate that the Hungarian population in Ann Arbor is like 0.03. I mean, we have a sizable Asian Asian audience in the Ann Arbor area, but someone went to Hungary, fell in love with Hungarian pastry and decided to bring it back to Ann Arbor and continue to make it. And it's all delicious, but it's things that we never would have tasted maybe outside New York or Chicago. And that's an example. I mean, they sell tons of rye bread and then they also sell Hungarian pastry, you know, and they've made a business model that allows them to do things like that. Right, right. And they've they've seen to me to be at least Ari has become sort of the face or the public spokesperson for Zingerman. And uh, tell me a little bit about their differences and how that makes for the business that works. Right. So if you go to Ann Arbor, I mean, first of all, Paul is not right now based in Ann Arbor. He's actually opened his own deli in Las Vegas called Saginaw which I'll talk about in a second. Ari is the person that you're most likely to meet if you go to either Zingerman's Deli or Zingerman's Roadhouse. Um, He'll sit out in front of the Roadhouse with his laptop in nice weather, and he'll be writing one of his newsletters and, you know, working away. But he also sometimes wanders around the Roadhouse with a water pitcher. And he has a real strategy with that. So he's just this tall guy, could look like any other employee and he comes to fill your water and if you know him that's your opportunity to say hey Ari and he'll always ask you you know is everything all right how do you like what you're eating that sort of thing but for him as as I explained in the book he uses it sort of as a, a way to oversee what's happening inside the restaurant so he can see if you're having a good conversation if you're intent on eating if you're have started a special and you don't like it and you're just kind of pushing it around. If something is cold, I mean, if you have been trying to get the attention of your server and you can't find your server, he can handle any issue that comes up. Of course, pour water too. Sure. He's kind of another set of eyes that goes through the dining room and might quietly say something to a server like, you know, they're, they need ketchup, you know, or he'll go get the ketchup. That's Uh And then Uh he also has a table and I haven't been to Zingerman's next door, which is kind of their coffee shop lately, but he used to sit at the back table. I actually have a picture of him sitting at the back table at seven o'clock in the morning. And if you wanted to see Ari, you'd get up early and go drop over to, to next door and get a few minutes of his time. So that's Ari, you know, he is, he's actually, it's interesting because he considers himself to be an introvert and I feel a little introverted too, but he has to kind of pull himself up and be the public face. So 
interestingly, Paul Saginaw is much more outgoing, at least as far as I'm concerned. And But Paul right now is out in Las Vegas because as sort of a third act in his career, he decided he wanted to start his own deli. He loves Las Vegas. He's been going to Vegas since he was a kid with his uncle who was a pre- professional gambler. And he he's in a big billion dollar development called Circa. It's downtown. It's not on the strip. It's downtown. And it's got um, a 24-hour deli called Saginaw's. And there's actually a life-size paper mache figure of Paul at the front so you could get a selfie with Paul. (laughs) And he decided that, you know, he'd done this deli for 40 years and now he wanted to do his own deli. And of course, he dives into it right when the pandemic has hit. Although the pandemic didn't hit Vegas the way it hit a lot of small cities, you know, they didn't have the shutdown rules that a lot of us had. So, but Paul is on the phone. Paul is on Zoom. I mean, he comes back to Ann Arbor regularly. He has meetings from morning to night when he's back. Although he, I, I used to talk to him first thing in the morning for the book and he would be getting off the golf course. So I think he's got a pretty happy life out in Vegas. That's oh, that's great. Well, neither one of them has neither Paul nor Ari is going to be able to pass this along to the next generation of their families. Right. So what does that mean in terms of what's going to happen to Zingerman and how are they planning for that? Yeah. So Zingerman's, as I think I've mentioned, it started as the original deli and then it started branching out in the nineties, the bakehouse, the baking operation was the first major business. And then in 1999, they started mail order and mail order is enormous. It's 40% of the annual revenues and it really saved them during the pandemic. So there are 17 different businesses and business names. They all have a managing partner, which is usually someone who worked at Singerman's, but Often now they're bringing in new people. You have to put up some investment or they'll loan you the money to put up investment. So you have some capital at risk. And then each of these businesses has its own balance sheet. Each of them contributes to the overall community of businesses. And these managing partners are kind of like, you know, they run their own business, but they're almost like a governing board for Mm -hmm. Zingerman's, although they never wanted anything as formal as a board of directors. But they are. They have a meeting called a huddle, which had taken place weekly, and, and I think that slipped a little bit during the pandemic. And they talk about things across the community of businesses. And so major decisions are very much discussed. They call it open book management. And they're all discussed across the board, and people all have input into those decisions. So the way things are being structured... Paul and Ari actually make their money by the fact that they're, they have control an entity that takes a licensing fee from each of the businesses. So what's happening is that they are starting to cash out on some of the value of the names of those businesses. And eventually the whole enterprise will be jointly owned by those managing partners. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think it's all final yet, but I think what they'll end up doing is eventually having 
maybe a couple professionals running the you know the the most technical parts of the business but you know paul will probably leave first although i'm sure he doesn't even consider it leaving but he'll step away from day to day probably first and he'll probably cash out and then ari wants to be there as long as ari can he's only i think 66 so he's got some time you right. know but mm -hmm. eventually the idea is Kind of it'll be a collective i just i think it'll be very interesting to see how that actually works i think they're going to need a couple people back in the control room to you know dial the dials and pull the levers so. sure sure i i think that it's just so wise of them to be so aware of all of this and they seem to have been aware of it for a long time and kind of reinvent themselves as opportunities presented and as the world changed and all of that. Right. And the pandemic is a really a great example of all of that because people used to say to me, you know, we're Zingermans, we don't change very quickly. I mean, they will talk about things for four or five years before they actually happen. But during the pandemic, they did not have that luxury. And right they had to move very, very fast because Michigan imposed a stay-at-home order that closed the insides of all the restaurants. And so the deli had to immediately move to all carry out and the roadhouse, which is their big sit-down restaurant, had to move to carry out and pick up. And they really didn't want to deal with delivery services because they had lots of bad experiences with those. But Literally, the bakehouse was able to stay open because they were considered an essential business, the equivalent of a grocery store. The deli was eventually allowed to reopen sort of under that grocery store label. Uh -huh. But they had to just be making changes every single week, which is not not their culture at all. But what happened was each of the businesses was just told, go innovate, go do what you need to do. We'll help each other with ideas if necessary, but you're going to have to just take charge and, and run your operation. And I think that's kind of a run up for the way Zingerman's will be, you know, once this eventual transition takes place. Yeah. And maybe this happened right at the right time. So they had some practice, some real world. That's a, good, that's a really great way to put it. And I hadn't really thought of it that way. Cause I think people at the beginning thought that the pandemic was temporary and everything would go back to the way it was once it was quote unquote over. Well, it's not over and innovation continues. And I think maybe now innovation is just going to be the, the watchword for Zingerman's rather than the exception in a sense. And not probably not only for Zingerman's because I think that many things, let's just talk about Zoom for a moment. Yeah, I mean, sure. Zoom existed before the pandemic. But Zoom, because it was ready and it was a, a fully thought out idea that wasn't just thrown together to, to work during the pandemic, it has totally changed people's attitudes about um, travel for meetings and all of the things that we know that Zoom has done. And because it was, you had to deal with it. You mm -hmm. couldn't have that, oh, I always like to get together with people. And so I'm going to resist doing Zoom or what, whatever yeah. uh, you might have thought about it. You had to do it. And right. so it has totally made people 
say, well, it wasn't so bad or it was it was more useful than I thought it would be. And and so we've had some things because of the pandemic that are changed that would have taken maybe 10 years to change, but just changed very quickly. And now we're dealing with a changed world. Right. And so here's an example. The deli only did about 8% of their business pre-ordered. In other words, like if you were going to get a sandwich at the deli, you went to the deli. You might have called in your order, but 80 some percent of people who got sandwiches at the deli got them in person. Mm -hmm. And that ordering process is completely flipped. 80% is now ordered before people go pick it up or get it delivered. And they, there's something about Zingerman's called the line and literally the lineup to order sandwiches used to stretch down the length of the store, out the door and around the corner on football days and now they just don't have that because they want people to order in advance. There might be a little bit of a backup to pick up your food, mm-hmm. but they don't want that line stretching down the store because it got in the way of people who were grocery shopping and it got in the way of the storytelling that is part of the whole process of shopping there. You know, If you have a question about balsamic vinegar, olive oil or spices, there's somebody there to answer your question. But if you got this line of people, you can't really be telling their story. That's right. Yeah. That's an example of a change because of COVID that's made the process better. And they're going through the deli, you know, opened in 1982 and it just didn't change and grew, but the whole process didn't change for more, almost 40 years. And now in the last two years, it's completely been revolutionized. So tell me, did you, in writing this book, because I'm sure that you always learn things when you're writing a book. I mean, I certainly do. And you wrote several books about the auto industry. So this was a different industry, but you know, I'm sure that the business parts of it were already in your brain and in your experience because you've written business books before. What did you feel that you got out of the experience of writing this book? So for me, because I, you know, I love food, I've always loved writing about food. I really didn't have as much of an opportunity to write about it when I was at the New York Times. I wrote a little bit for dining, but they had some really strict rules back, you know, 10, 15 years ago that you only if you had worked in a restaurant or gone to culinary school, could you actually write on staff? for them. I know it was, it was all different back then, but that kind of kept me from writing very much for dining. So I would write about Ina Garten and Zingerman's and other people for the business section, because I would put the business aspect to the stories in it and then slip the food in. You know? <laughs> so For me, it was really an opportunity to understand how a food business works versus a corporation. I mean, I've covered Toyota and General Motors, which are, you know, $200 billion businesses. This is a $70 million business. The people making the decisions at the car companies, you'd have to go through public relations and wait three weeks to interview them and go through security and all that at at 
Zingerman's, you just send somebody an email and they're like, how about Thursday? (laughs) (laughs) I was lucky that I could do some of my interviews in person, but I did a lot of them on Skype and over the phone. Um, because of the pandemic. but uh. So I teach journalism, or I've taught journalism in the past, and I've told my students that there are some key differences between covering major corporations and small businesses, and you learn from both. And I think what I learned from Zingerman's is that it's it's more sophisticated than that little brick building, but it's also very personal. And it's Uh the kind of place where people can bring ideas and suggestions and actually see them happen. And I think that's very encouraging to a lot of the people who've worked there, because if you work in a big company, my dad worked for American Airlines for 20 years. And, you know, actually, I'll tell you one story about my dad. He's the guy that invented the buttonhole that's in the napkins in first class. So if you travel, have ever traveled in first class on an airline, the napkins had a little buttonhole. And my dad discovered that you could button a napkin to your shirt front. Uh-huh. And if the plane was hitting turbulence, then your lap, you know, your front and your lap would be covered and it would save your tie. This is <laughs> way back. I mean, nobody dresses up to fly anymore. But I'm hoping people will remember the time when there was a buttonhole and napkins in first class. And so my dad got you know $200 or whatever for suggesting that. And then it became an industry standard to put a buttonhole in the napkins in first class. But you know, he's like one guy in the sea of American Airlines. And his his colleagues and superiors loved him, but the public in general never got to meet him. Sure. You think about somebody like Ari, that you can go meet the co-founder of the company sitting in the sun outside of the roadhouse. And you can't say that a lot about a lot of people. Yeah. Here in new Orleans, you do get to meet chefs and they do come out in the dining room and, you know, if you want to meet Meg Bickford at Commanders, you can meet her and Chip Apperson's over at Hi-Hat all the time, you know, on the floor. But a lot of times people never meet the folks in charge. And I think that is part of the charm of Zingerman's. Yeah, yeah. Even reading the catalog, you feel that way. So yeah, the catalog is meant to be very personal. And there's a whole section in the book about the mail order operation and how they're changing the catalog copy right up into the time that they publish the catalog. They consider it to be like a magazine and they want to tell you the freshest story about all the food. Yeah. So I want to know what you're working on now. What can we look forward to from, from Mickey Maynard? So right at the moment, I'm focusing on my column in the Washington Post, which is in the opinion section and it's part of Voices across america and voices across america is intended to bring voices like mine between the coasts and raise issues that maybe the political reporters and the tech reporters are not necessarily looking at so i've written about urban flooding i mean even before jackson and eastern kentucky i had already written a column about urban flooding things like that I just wrote about the importance of the middle of the country. If you think about Kansas and the abortion vote, there's going to be a new radio show called The Middle, which will look at the middle of the country. 
I've written about grief. I've written about the restaurant industry and how much trouble the restaurants were having finding people to work. So I'm trying to look at business and culture topics that aren't just Washington politicians, you know, arguing about something. And I have a newsletter called the Culinary Woman Newsletter. It's on Substack and everybody is invited to sign up. And in that newsletter, I try to look at food topics from more of a personal point of view, but also a business point of view. So I'm writing about restaurant staffing issue. I write about Starbucks. I write about books that new books that are coming out like yours um, <laughs> that that people might be interested in. And it's sort of my uh, my curated look at food and business and things I think people would benefit from trying and reading that sort of thing. And then I write about food for a wonderful website called The Takeout. Um, I just wrote a really fun piece about those fruit trucks. And I don't know if they've been as much of a factor in New Orleans, but they sure are up north. And it's like the peach truck that drives up from Georgia and the apple truck that's now driving down from Michigan. And what you should know if you're going to order a box of $42 apples from them, you know, so... Mm -hmm. Yeah, so my 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 mission for the takeout is to write kind of what I guess it used to be called service pieces, but if you're going to spend your money on something, what you should know. So I wrote a piece about buying kitchen gear at estate sales, and I just bought a Keurig for fifteen dollars at a garage <laughs> sale. And what you know, what you should know before you spend your money um, some something secondhand. You know, so that's those sorts of things. And then I'm always looking for opportunities to write features about chefs and recipes and things like that. And are you still doing business writing too? Yeah. So my business writing tends to be more for the post and the takeout and other places where I kind of have to work in numbers because one of the things I've found is that a lot of business reporting can be a little on the dry side and uh -huh. get intimidated by, you know, what does this mean? And, you know, what do rising interest rates mean? And what, what does it mean if I can't get a mortgage that I can afford stuff like that? So, right. Yeah. Well, I, I have to tell you that satisfaction guaranteed was not dry. And oh, so thank you. <laughs> I, I thought that Although I, I definitely think you covered the business end. I'm not trying to say that you skipped over the business part. It really seemed like this is people's everyday, um, this is their life and this is what they think about and what they care about. And, and then that turns into how they run the business. And so the very personal side of it was there too. And obviously they yeah. have to be worried about the bottom line and all the other issues that every business has to worry about. And clearly that you covered that, but it also, I thought really captured the spirit and the feeling of Zingerman's at the same time. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And I think people have different perceptions of Zingerman's. I mean, if you've been able to physically go to Zingerman's, you have the experience of being in store. It's like if people know Zabar's in New York, I mean, right. Mm -hmm. I go to I've been going to Zabar's since I was a college student at Columbia and I would take the bus down. And to me, you know, you can keep your big department stores. I'm just happy to go to Zabar's and shop. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of people 
who feel the same way about Zingerman's that they want the store or the restaurant experience. But yeah. most people will only know it from mail order. Mm -hmm. And their mail order list has 2 million names. And they said about 100,000 people a year because they make multiple purchases. Right. About 100,000 right. individuals a year buy from them. And so as you're mentioning, the catalog is the ambassador for mm -hmm. Zingerman's itself. And so whether you get the experience in person or a mail order or somebody sent you a coffee cake or something like that, they want you to come away with a, a, a favorable, a friendly impression of the company. Well, thanks so much, Mickey. Everybody should look at Satisfaction Guaranteed, how Zingerman's built a corner deli into a global food community. And Thanks again. We'll be talking. <laughs> Thank you, Liz. Take care. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Learn more and subscribe to this and other podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook on Nitty Grits Podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.